Are you looking for a new job? Are you hiring but can't find diverse, talented candidates? Look no further because we're here to help you out. Head on over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs where you can browse listings, post your own job listings, and sign up for email updates when new job listings are posted. This week on the job board, American Express is looking to fill the following roles. UX writer, senior UX designer, senior mobile product designer, and a design manager for their mobile product design team. All positions are looking for candidates in New York City, though the senior UX designer, senior mobile product designer, and design manager positions are open to remote candidates. The senior mobile product designer position is also looking for candidates in Phoenix, Arizona. Posting to our job board starts at just $99, way less than many other design job boards. And for an additional fee, you can have your listing advertised here on the podcast and reach tens of thousands of listeners. Make sure to head over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs for more information on these listings and others. Get started with us and expand your job search or recruiting efforts today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. For the past few months now, you've heard me talk about the Tim Collective. It's a new initiative from Revision Path and State of Black Design. And it's something that we started to pair black designers with companies that are looking to hire black designers. Right now in September, this period right now is kind of called the September surge by a lot of like recruiters and HR folks. It's a time when companies fiscal years are beginning. So they're starting to look for more employees. So if you're looking for work, if you've been affected by a recent layoff like I have, this is a perfect time for you to look for work and a perfect time for you to join the 10th Collective. It's free to join. You just fill out a short profile and you're all set. You'll be contacted by companies when they're ready to talk to you, but you can also hide your profile from companies or remain completely anonymous. The 10th Collective is meant to be a resource for you, whether you're looking for your next opportunity or not. So it's just a really great asset to have in your back pocket for your career. Head over to the 10thcollective.com to join, or you can check out the link in the show notes. This episode of Revision Path is also brought to you by Hover. Building your online brand has never been more important, and that begins with your domain name. Show the online community who you are and what you're passionate about with Hover. Let's say you made a website on Squarespace or Wix or Webflow or something like that. One really great way to brand it to yourself is to get your own custom domain name, and Hover definitely has you covered there. With over 400 plus domain extensions to choose from, including all the classics and some fun niche extensions, Hover is the only domain provider I use and trust. So what are you waiting for? Go to hover.com forward slash revision path and get 10% off your first purchase. Now for this week's interview. I'm talking with writer, author, and illustrator Keith Henry Brown in Brooklyn, New York. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Hi, I'm uh, Keith Henry Brown, and I am illustrator, 
graphic designer and a writer. How has 2022 been going so far? It's hot. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I can tell you that. Other than that, I stay busy. In a lot of ways, I'm uh, juggling two different careers. A career where I am a, uh, I guess, a full-time illustrator, but then I'm also a full-time art director, graphic designer for an uh, advertising firm. I try to find some way to do both of those. I'm also a dad. Both my kids, though, are men now, but, you know, you got to deal with the craziness. (laughs) Just, you know, juggling. But I I like being busy. That's what it's all about. You know, the minute I slow down, then I start feeling, like, complacent. Yeah. I know exactly what you mean. You mentioned being an author. I wanted to congratulate you on your book that uh, just came out a couple of months ago, Because of You, John Lewis. Is that right? Yeah. I didn't write that one. It's uh, Andrea Davis Pinkney wrote this beautiful script about a story about this young man named uh, Tybri Faw, who was, I think, 11 or 12 at the time, who was obsessed with civil rights leaders, which I think is pretty extraordinary in itself, from Tennessee. And he asked his two grandmothers to drive him to meet John Lewis. He met John Lewis, came in the back door. All these reporters came up to him and said, what are you doing here? I want to say hello to my hero. They opened the back door. Mr. Lewis came out, never saw the kid before in his life. The kid started crying. He held up a sign telling him about how, what he felt about him, which was basically saying, you're a hero of mine. Lewis gave him a big hug. He later invited him to march with him on the Edmund Pettus Bridge, and then they became friends. When mm-hmm. Mr. Lewis died, he did his uh, eulogy at his funeral. They became friends for a short time while John Lewis was alive. So the book is about their relationship, but the book is really about how leaders inspire each other. Like uh, Martin Luther King was John Lewis's mentor, not at first, but his person that he fancied and that he was interested in and wanted to be like. And then he finally got to meet him and work with King, Mr. King, which you probably know. And then the same thing happened again with Tybri and John Lewis. So it's sort of a succession of uh, future and past civil rights leaders. Wow. Sounds like a great book. I'll definitely put a link to it um, in the show notes so people can check it out. I give most of the credit to Andrea. They, they found me. I wasn't, Scholastic Books is the publisher, and, and I, I hadn't done anything like it yet in my career. And it was just a huge honor that they thought that I could do it. And I was intimidated uh, because of the, all these amazing people that were involved. And it was a learning experience. But uh, the book is out, and people seem to like it. We've gotten starred reviews from uh, Kirkus and Library Journal, and people seem to like it. I, I'm excited that people know the story now. Mm. Is there anything you want to try and accomplish before the end of the year? Yeah, I mean, I have a lot of projects coming up. <laughs> so I'm a job-oriented person, you know, so in my mind, it's, my whole life is a series of tasks that I have to achieve. And, it, and I break it down from year, and I break it down to week, and I break it down to month. And I know what I got to do the rest of this year. <laughs> and there's a lot of stuff I got to do. So I just, it was just announced that I'm doing a, a book about, it was a story of Raymond Santana, who is the, one of the Central Park Five, the exonerated Central Park Five, I may mm-hmm. add. You may know the story about these five African-American young men who were wrongly accused of raping a white woman in Central Park in the 80s. They all went to jail for this crime that they did not do. They were all eventually exonerated, but they all suffered horribly. In the early 2000s, they were awarded an apology and some money from it, but the story itself is scarring. David D. Vernay did a 
really beautiful film about it that I think is still on TV on um, on Netflix. Uh, yeah, yeah, on Netflix, and also there's a beautiful documentary by Ken Burns and his daughter about it. It's an extraordinary and heartbreaking story about you know not just these specific young men's lives, but also how black men are treated. As a matter of fact, I love the title of DuVernay's film, which is When They See Us. Mm-hmm. If you're a black man living in America, you know exactly what that means. Anyway, I'm doing a graphic novel based on his memoirs. That is something I have to start working on this year. I have a book that I've already written and finished, and it's coming out next May that I wrote. This first book that I've written. So that's why I, I've written a lot of articles like about music and things like that, but this is my first book that I've ever written. And that one is about, it's called My Dad's a DJ. It's about my relationship with my kids. And uh, after I divorced my ex-wife, or she divorced me, whatever you want to put it, we went on and uh, had a relationship through music. And you know how the music that I like, old school, 70s, star, uh, Prince and Stevie Wonder and all that, and they like the hip hop cats. And then we kind of used to have these sorts of agreements and disagreements about music. And then we finally connected. And this kind of, so the book is really about staying together with your kids after a divorce. And that book is coming out in May next year. So all these things are going on. I also have another book <laughs> that I'm working on. I could keep going on about it. So I guess to answer your question more succinctly, I have a lot of assignments. I'm going to try to get as many, much of them done as I can. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to try to get some rest too, because uh, I don't want to lose my mind. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I mean, it sounds like you're working on a lot of stuff. And I want to dig more into your illustration work, but let's talk a little bit about your day job. We don't have to spend a whole lot of time on it, but you mentioned working at an ad agency. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, I'm a pharmaceutical advertising designer. That means that um, I'm designing ads and um, product packaging for different brands. One of the last ones that I did that had a pretty big campaign that went on to get well-known was called TALTS, which is a a type of drug that helps with people who have eczema. Mm -hmm. And uh, I first came to the agency to work on testosterone drugs, which was interesting. But then the it was changed to work on this. So, you know, it's been something I've been doing now for a number of years because, um, as I said, I have children. I was married at the time, and I was trying to make a, a living doing that, even though my main goal all my life was to be an illustrator and to be an artist and to draw. But then, you know, you have to do what you have to do to take care of your family. So I uh, had a, a friend who was into advertising and said, you should try this. This would be something you should do. And I had dabbled in advertising because I'd worked on some small magazines. So I taught myself things like Quark and Photoshop and a lot of Adobe uh, Creative Suite. So I knew how to do those things. And I just figured it just takes a little creativity to lay out an advertising. And then I started out small, working for a small African-American agency when I was living in uh, Louisville, Kentucky for a few years. And when I was there, I got a job working at Churchill Downs. And then after Churchill Downs, I decided that I was an I was an art director and I was a and I was a graphic designer and I decided to put aside illustration for a while. Although I was still kind of doing it on the side for myself and for small publications. Mm. How do you balance your illustration projects with your day job projects? I mean, doing work for Big Pharma. I mean, given the current climate that we're in, pretty stable. I mean, people are always going to get sick. But how do you sort of balance that with your outside illustration work? I think I'm in a fairly unique situation in that I've been doing it so long that I've reached sort of a a senior position where I don't do as much of the nuts and bolts designing as much as I do 
and leading teams. And uh, so that means that I don't have to necessarily be there in the office, be part of the day-to-day, because I've just been doing it when you have a certain amount of knowledge of the business and understanding of what is expected of you. I work with younger designers. So I don't put as many like man hours as maybe somebody who's just getting into the business. And so then I, I just schedule and balance my hours with book projects, magazine projects, album cover projects. And I'm also... I'm pretty fast uh, with my illustration. I work very quickly. So, you know, usually if I get an assignment, I can turn it around relatively quickly so that I have time to stay with my day job, which I'll probably stick with for a little while longer. But eventually I want to, and I've told my employer this, so I'm not saying anything I don't want anyone to know, phase it out so that I can focus entirely on the illustration work. Hmm. It sounds like you've, I guess, found a pretty happy medium then. Yeah, because you want to have that security. You're going to be able to take care of your mortgage and all that stuff. But at the same time, you have to have that happiness. You know, one of the things I've learned from being around a lot of jazz musicians is they're the happiest people I know, and they never die. They live forever. And I think it's because they're doing exactly what they want to do. I know jazz musicians that are pretty well known and really talented who struggle financially, mm-hmm. especially during the, um, when the pandemic was going on. You know, they didn't have anywhere to play. There are some that are so well, well established, they, they're okay. I don't know. Ron Carter, the great bass player, I don't think he worries about that. But there's a lot of young musicians who are quite brilliant who weren't working. I see it the same way. It's like I have to eventually take that chance that working in the corporate world and get stepping away from it, you know, so that I can do the thing that I really love because I want to be happy. I'm not saying that doing design just makes me unhappy. And I'm happy this skill gave me and it got my kids through school and it bought me a house and all that stuff, but um, it just doesn't fulfill me the way that illustration does. Mm. I mean, I think that's fair as a creative. I mean, the things that sort of give you that inspiration may not necessarily be the job I think that you work at, but I would also say, and this is for anyone I think that just does other projects on the side, sometimes you have to do the thing you don't want to do in order to do the thing that you want to do. Like, I feel like that's sometimes career advice that people don't really get told a whole lot. But but no, I mean, it's, it sounds like no, you found that balance, though. I totally agree with what you just said. I sometimes teach classes at schools about art and design, or I come in or do workshops or stuff like that occasionally. And a lot of kids, they go to where I went, like Parsons or SVA, School of Visual Design or FIT, and they come out and they think, okay, now I'm going to be this amazing designer and I'm going to do fashion magazines and I'm going to do all this super, super slick stuff and I'm going to design for Beyonce and I'm going to design for whatever it is they think they're going to do. And they think it's all going to be glamorous. But sometimes you got to do stuff that's not so exciting because there's all kinds of design out there. It's everything from, I started off at one point, at one point I was doing catalogs, which I wouldn't wish on uh, my worst enemy. And not, not to criticize anyone who's doing it, but I found it very difficult. And Certain times of design is not as glamorous, and I don't find, or even you find out it's not as glamorous as you thought, which is what my experience was with doing comic books. I, all my, my young life, I always thought, oh my God, I want to draw Marvel comics. I mean, that's all I wanted to do. And I drew comics by myself in my room when I was like eight years old or seven years old, and I drew comics with my friends, and I went to the school I went to thinking, you know, I get to go, and I got to do it. And when I was actually there doing it, I realized, wow, this is a job. Yeah, <laughs> this yeah. is work. I have to be adult because I have to meet deadlines, and I have to put out a certain amount of pages, and they have to be a certain level of quality. And I have people looking over my shoulder, telling me what's good and what's not good. 
So a lot of things are like that, right? It's like, you got to put the work in, you got to put the time in and you have to figure out like, do I want to break through to do this thing? Like, I think I heard an interview you did with Ray Billingsley. Oh yeah. Yeah. The great cartoonist. And, Mm -hmm. And he was saying something similar where he was saying that he's one of those guys who really learned his craft. I mean, we know him from his cartoon strip, his comic strip. But actually, you know, he can draw all kinds of things and he tried everything and he worked on it. And then he owned it down to this project that he has now been doing for a lot of years. But it was a lot of work and thought behind it. It wasn't something you decide one day, I, I could draw pretty good. I think I'll draw a comic strip. I do think we all have to pay our dues in some form. And my pay, paying my dues for a long time was doing graphic design. Now, having said that, I know a lot of people that's all they do and they do it way better than me and they're beautiful. And they're excited about it every day, and they love doing design. And I still love graphic design to a certain point of view, but to a certain amount. But mm-hmm. it doesn't give me the same high that drawing does, because I think I started off wanting to draw more than anything. Yeah. For folks who haven't heard that Ray Billingsley interview, it's episode 370. Go check it out. It's, it's a really good interview. When you have a new illustration project that comes in, whether that's a, a book or, or whatever else you might be working on, like what does your creative process look like? Take me into that process. I could talk about a book or I could talk about an album cover or I could talk about a magazine because some of them are different lengths of time that you immerse yourself in it. But I'll just mention um, one I just did for a magazine called Rethinking Schools, which is a wonderful magazine that is for teaching teachers how to teach children. Like teachers write articles in the magazine and they explain the techniques they use that were effective so other teachers could use it. It's a great magazine. And they use a lot of illustration. I did a full page illustration a couple of months ago for them. And the process was the art director came to me and said, this is an article. I'm sending it to you. See if you want to do this. See if there's something you think you would be interested in. This is how much we pay. And basically the article was about how this one teacher wanted to teach children about Black Lives Matter through dance, if she was a dancing teacher, and she wanted to teach choreography to these kids in a private school. And so I came up with these drawings, uh, the kids dancing, and to this sort of music that they describe in the BLM article. And I just came up with sketches first, they approve them, and then you start to paint them in, and then they'll say, well, this figure we like better than that figure, and you take them out and you put them in. So my thing is, I kind of do a mixture between digital and traditional with the accent on the traditional. Like I draw everything out by hand on paper usually. And then I uh, scan it in and either I paint on it or I use digital colors. like out of Photoshop or something like that. Or, or sometimes it's a combination of both things as we go to the final art. I do watercolor because I like the spontaneity of it. And I like the fact that I can't really control it 100% and that it can just suddenly do something that I didn't expect it to do. And that could be scary because it might not be something I wanted to do. But it also means that something exciting can happen. And whenever I I do something and it feels static to me or it doesn't look interesting or it's not moving, I I always miss the watercolor element, which is the thing that makes it to me feel spontaneous and alive, which is also connected to why I like jazz so much. See, I was just about to ask, you know, because I noticed that theme of, you know, a lot of your work being done in watercolors, but it sounds like you like to have a little bit of that unknown element in the work. Yeah, I mean, I appreciate a lot of illustrators' work where they spend a lot of time 
planning every single illustration out to an nth degree and the colors and they have palettes and they do hundreds of preliminary drawings and sketches and things like that. And I do do some of that, but I like the idea of, I don't know, just kind of like going with the feeling, you know, I mean, I've even had times where I've done a book, I didn't even finish reading the book and the whole script and the manuscript of the book and was doing the illustrations without even having read it all. <laughs> uh, I probably shouldn't say that out loud to anyone who wants to hire me, but, uh, <laughs> but if I like the basic idea, I'm like, okay, like I did it. The first book I, I got published was in 2019. It was called um, Birth of the Cool, How Miles Davis Found His Sound, which was, could not have been a more perfect first book for me <laughs> because I love Miles. And I just thought the idea of doing a children's book about Miles was kind of brilliant, even though I couldn't figure out exactly how they were going to do it because, you know, Miles was not always kids-friendly, you know, kid-friendly. Mm -hmm. But I read like two or three pages of the script and I said, ah, I see what she's doing. So I just started doing it. And I actually read the book as I was doing the illustrations, which anyone would tell you is insane because you should plan the whole thing out. <laughs> I just read the descriptions of what the action was and not the actual dialogue or even all the text. but. I wanted it to feel like jazz, and I wanted it to feel as spontaneous as he is, and how he takes a moment, you know, I mean, that's why jazz is so important to see, you know, live, or live recordings are the best, in my opinion, because everybody is not actually sure what they're going to be doing that day on the, in that performance. And it could be brilliant, and it could be not the best thing they ever did. I'm lucky enough to be in a position where I just, just the way I do things. I don't really know any other way of doing it. If I think that if I drew the whole thing out and knew exactly what I was going to do, it would feel too much like work. <laughs> <laughs> so this way it feels like I'm just doing art. Yeah. Uh, it, it just happens to be following a specific storyline. Cause I also like storytelling, which is why I wanted to get into comics in the first place. But in comics it's way more structured. What would you say is the most challenging part about what you do? I think just finishing for me, it always seems incredibly like, how can I ever finish this? This is like huge. <laughs> there's so much to do. And there's that famous quote someone said where, you know, I like having, I don't like writing, but I like having written. I do feel that way. It's like, I could see the book in my head completed, but I don't particularly like the process in the sense that I can't wait for it to be done. I want to see the book in my hands. I want to see it all drawn, but I know that that means many hours of, of work. I just got a project recently that I'm very excited about. Uh, it hasn't been announced officially yet, but it's already, we've already kind of signed everything. So it's a book about this relationship between Malcolm X and this Japanese woman who was also an activist and their friendship. And it's very unusual. It's a true story. And, and the fact that most people don't know about this, also the fact that the famous picture of when he was shot in the ballroom, there's a woman holding creating his head. It was this Japanese woman. And some the writer saw this picture and decided to find out who this woman was. And she ended up writing this kid's book about their relationship. Some of her activism comes out of the horrible story of the internment camps during World War II. They put Japanese in after Pearl Harbor. And she started off to, with that kind of activism. And then she folded into other kinds of activism and then became friends, mostly correspondent with um, correspondence with um uh, Malcolm X. Anyway, I'm working on this book now. We were having a, a story conference with the publishers the other day with my agent, and we were talking about you know what the book was going to look like and what it was going to sound like and what, what kind of tone. And I could see the whole book in my head in like five minutes, and I was like, I just wish I could just 
snap my fingers and it was done <laughs> because I want to see the book more than I want to make it. <laughs> yeah. Because it really comes down to work. I think Alfred Hitchcock said once that when he came with a story like, I don't know, Psycho or something, Other Birds, once he had the storyboards and he had the script done to him and the thing was done. He said all the, the work of having to get the actors and go on set and shoot everything was the least interesting part to him. And I really relate to that because that's the mechanics of it. It's the conception of, of it that I think is the most exciting. But I do have a lot of fun in the midst of painting when I'm actually doing it too. So I always say that I don't want to do the work, but when I'm really in it, I kind of forget I'm working. So it works both ways. But I do want to see the thing done, but usually before I can finish it. <laughs> Yeah, I'm interested to see that too. You're talking about Yuri Kochiyama is the is the activist that you're talking about. Yep. I'd be excited to see that book when it's done. Oh yeah, that's I'm gonna put a thousand percent in that one. I think it's a beautiful, beautiful story, and I think it's it's a story that should be told. I love the idea of people of different cultures, races coming together in a, in a, in a cause. I mean, I don't want to exaggerate the relationship. It was a short one, but it was significant to Malcolm. It was significant to her and their families. And and I think we don't do enough of that. I don't think I've ever read anything like that or any, any story about an Asian person and a black person together on a common cause in a big, you know, in a, in a huge sort of undertaking, you know, like uh, human rights or activism. Mm-hmm. So I want people to see this book so bad. I want it out there. I want it in stores now. you know i just got to get it there you know i felt the same way about miles i felt the same way about john lewis i felt the same way my dad's a dj i want people to see it well let's kind of switch gears here a little bit and learn more about you about your origin story you live in brooklyn right now but you're originally from staten island is that correct yeah (laughs) it was an interesting place to grow up in what do you remember growing up there Actually, I lived in a pretty diverse neighborhood. My best friend lived next door to me was Jewish, and we had Filipinos living a couple of doors away. We had Irish and Polish, and we had Latinos, Puerto Rican, and Dominicans all in the neighborhood. So, you know, the attitude, I think a lot of people think of Staten Island, especially from recent events, that it's like this totally uh, red part of uh, New York, <laughs> that full of Joe Plumbers and stuff like that. But it wasn't like that when I grew up. Although, there was also a really strong Sicilian community of Italians that we didn't really connect with as much, but we had this one little thing. It's, it was called Staples in Staten Island. Also, this is the same area where Wu Tang started their thing. You know, oh yeah, they that's were, right. They were a, their project was probably about a quarter mile from the little neighborhood I grew up in. I grew up in a house, and my dad was a physician, my mom was a bank teller. So I guess you'd call it like near middle class because <laughs> I had my own room and I had a house and I had everything I needed. But it wasn't, you know, we weren't rich or anything because my dad was still a student when I was growing up and my mom were full time, you know, at a banker's. But it was a pretty nice upbringing in terms of how I saw the world. I always saw it. Uh, it wasn't until I got older that I realized, you know, that there was things like severe racism and things like that. So, you know, I was able to fantasize and not worry about my place in the world as much and deal with things like that, you know, like so... I, plunged in the world of Marvel comics and fantasy books and science fiction like Isaac Asimov and people like that. So that was the thing that I was into when I was a kid. And also music, the Beatles. And I like the Beatles the same way that I like Stevie Wonder. I didn't have any boundaries in how I saw music and, and art. So it sounds like you grew up around a lot of music. Did you also kind of grew up around a lot of art too? No, that's the interesting thing. My mom was a singer. 
But she sang in the choir and she had a beautiful voice. She even got accepted to Juilliard at one point and couldn't go because my grandfather couldn't afford to send her there. So uh, we always had a lot of records um, in the house. So I was always listening to music. I would listen, I would read every word in the, in the liner notes and read everything back 15,000 <laughs> times. And I was like a fanatic about LPs and, and music. Art really wasn't there. The only art that was, I think I came by art almost completely through comic books and wanted to draw comic books of my own. And um, I didn't really know anything about, you know, art history or anything like that until I got to uh, high school. I went to a high school of art and design, which was in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and it, it, uh, it still exists, obviously. It's a great school. I started learning about painting and drawing. So I got interested in things beyond comics at that point. But before that, I don't know if anybody else in my family who even drew. I think comics was probably like a good gateway for a lot of people. I mean, especially, you know, if I'm thinking about the time that you grew up and especially with uh, like starting to see more black people in comics, too. I would imagine that probably was really inspiring to see back then. Huge, huge, huge. Uh, Trevor Von Eden, who created Black Lightning, Mm -hmm. um, who's a little bit about the same age as me. There's a legendary story about how he sent his drawings into DC Comics on loose leaf paper because he didn't have any other kind of paper. And they started, oh, wow. him, started giving him gigs. But the big one for me was a guy named Billy Graham. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He did a lot of the early Black Panther uh, comics. He basically, with the writer, created Killmonger, the characters in the movies. Oh, He did these magnificent stories. One particular one called Pants' Rage, where the same story that's basically in the movie is in that story, which is that Killmonger, the character that he would play by Michael Jordan in the film, kind of takes him down as being Prince and, and, and challenges his um, leadership of Wakanda. That was a Billy Graham thing. He was one of the very few blacks that were in the business. Brilliant guy. He was also a playwright, a painter. He was just this amazing guy. I only met him once for a few minutes, but I was like in awe of him. But most of the people that I liked, to be completely honest, were, were like Jack Kirby and Neil Adams and Stan Lee and those guys, you know, I mean, they were all like guys to me. I mean, if I had a choice between meeting Paul Newman or, or Tom Cruise and, or Stan Lee and, and Jack Kirby, I probably would have done the latter. I mean, those are the guys who were the big heroes to me when I was a kid that were the comic artists. So you were inspired by comic books. You went to this art high school. And then after you, you graduated, you attended Parsons. What was your time like there? It was good, but it was less about comics. By then, I had done a, a little time working in comics and decided it wasn't for me. So I wanted to learn to paint in a different way or draw in a different way and not be just in comics. I mean, the comic influence is, is there and will be there till the day I die. But And I still draw comics sometimes or cartoons, but I don't draw superheroes things anymore. Or not that I have anything against them, but my thing when I was at Marvel and also in general about superhero stuff is that a lot of times these things are, even then, before the movies came out and became this massive thing, billion dollar company is that they're all copyrighted characters owned by somebody else so there's not much you can do with them you have to stay with the continuity that you're given you have to be explained what you can do what you can't do even you and a writer have to follow a a larger storyline that maybe is being planned throughout the company and i always had this itching feeling to want to have my own characters and have my own thing so i wanted to learn illustration because i wanted to express myself more as an individual, unless as just a sort of a cog in this massive machine. I mean, every month on the dot, you had to have a new Marvel comic. And I think only the very, very best guys got 
recognition for what they did. But I don't think I was the best at that. I was okay. So I really wanted to express myself in a different way in, in comics. Start, I still love comics, especially independent comics. Mm-hmm. Like I'm, less, I'm more interested now in people like the Hernandez brothers, Love and Rockets. I love is probably my favorite cartoonist, Jaime Hernandez, than now, than um, superhero stuff. Because these guys are independent and they own their own characters and they create their own worlds that are basically coming from them and they're not in it for the money they're in it because they just had to do it yeah i admire that more than being just another person drawing spider-man out of the thousands that have done it over the years so parsons it sounds like kind of opened your eyes a little bit to the reality of of what the industry was like precisely exactly i started getting interested in um modern artists i started getting interested in abstract artists i love rothko i love the expressionist my favorite type of painting so Degas, my favorite painter i now like I began to appreciate art for what it is and the endless limitations that art can provide and not these sort of commercial concerns of just trying to sell something or sell a character. Now, I don't have anything against people who do that. There are some brilliant kids and artists doing this stuff now. I love them. I love looking at the drawings. I love looking at Greg Capullo or Jim Lee or Frank Miller when he was doing it. Dave Mastel, these are all comic book artists. These guys are freaking awesome. I just don't think that I'm built to do this stuff myself, but I love mm. to look at their work. There's a guy named Bill Sienkiewicz who does comics, but he also is a great, great illustrator. And a guy like him, he's like a god to me. So, you know, all these guys are great. I just know that I can't do comics because it's just not, I don't have the, uh, unless I do personal comic, like doing this graphic novel about, you know, the, the Central Park Five. I'm working on now one about a jazz musician. So if I can find my way in, then it's absolutely the greatest but if yeah. i have to just i don't know I, I couldn't be like one of those people who's doing i don't know spongebob spongebob, SpongeBob comics or something you know <laughs> i have to you know i gotta do something that i got some kind of skin in the game you know well yeah i mean it sounds like you're in it for the storytelling medium it's not just so much like a way of telling a story in terms of like oh here's spongebob and we're gonna do it via animation it's more like what's the story we can tell that animation can provide sort of that, like, I don't know, that bit of oomph to, I guess. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Uh, somebody was telling me the other day that they had a gig at um, Pixar. And they said, dude, they're looking for artists, illustrators to, like, maybe come in and work on Pixar movies. And I'm like, I mean, that sounds great in terms of financially and also prestige and stuff. But I don't really want to get bogged down working on some massive project where 100 other artists are working on, even if it's good. You right. know, like I like, like I thought, what was that one about the jazz musician that came out? Um, Soul. I thought it was real good, but I don't know that I'd want to have worked on it because it, it requires years of work, hundreds of people. Yeah. And I'd rather work on my little book, you know, where I'm, it's just me alone in a room and a writer writing a script. And then five, six months later, it's in a bookstore and it's got our names on it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> to me, it's like, I'd rather do that, even if it means I'm making less money or, or making or not part of a huge famous organization that could tell everybody, I work at Pixar or I yeah. work at so-and-so. Even when I worked at Marvel, I mean, people would be impressed when they said I worked at Marvel, but I didn't care about that part because I knew that I was just, I was doing stuff I wasn't even really that uh, inspired by. So it doesn't matter that people were enamored by it. It was more about the fact that I had to still sit down by myself at some point and try to meet a deadline for something that I didn't love. Uh, but having said that, there are people I know who do love it and God bless them because they do some beautiful work. Yeah. 
So you did eventually sort of, I don't know, I guess maybe fulfill that childhood dream. You did do some work for Marvel. Yeah. And then I saw what it was. Everybody finds what the reality of things is and what things really are. Like, like a lot of people think they want to be movie stars. A lot of people think they want to be pop stars. And then they find out what it's really like. And sometimes the stress is so much they can't handle it at all. Mm-hmm. My son is an independent musician. He has a band and he has albums out and he goes on tour. And, and one of the things we often talk about is, you know, if it ever happens that he blows up, get ready because it might not be what you want. And he, or even in a little bit of rushes of stuff that he's uh, seen by just opening for bigger acts and things like that and seeing how these guys live, they say, you know, a lot of it is really sh- difficult, you know, because once you're famous and people know who you are, or, or even if you're just known by people to be successful, it, it gets to be um, more about that than about the music, which is what you came in there to do in the first place. Mm. I relate to that so hard. And I, I, <laughs> I, I mean, for, for two reasons. I mean, I think one, from the musician standpoint, so I, I might have said this on the show before, but like before I got into anything design whatever i was a musician like i grew up playing trombone i played it all through high school through middle school through high school i played it in college i played it a few years after college as like a session musician but like i loved it i love me i still love music i was a, a jazz trombonist but like it's not making any money you're not making any, any real money and it's the hours are wild and crazy and like you have to do it because you love it. You're certainly not doing it to get rich or to get any sort of financial stability unless you really like get a deal with a label and then you record an EP or an LP or something and you blow up that way. Yeah, and I'm going to be honest. I mean, in jazz, I don't see anybody <laughs> getting rich. <laughs> you know, I, I actually... Not I in this country. For, absolutely not. <laughs> I work for one of the most successful jazz musicians there is. And I'm, he does well. I don't think he's hurting. But yeah. he, ain't he, ain't, he ain't no he ain't rich, multi-millionaire. Yeah. You know, um, I do all of his covers, and he and I are friends. But I know he's very well-known in the jazz world. But outside of the jazz world, guys won like six Grammys. I mean, yeah. he's, he's a genius. But it doesn't matter because there's, there's a limited audience for that type of music. Unless you're somebody like Herbie Hancock, who's become a legendary figure. And not only is he a legendary figure, but he's also even done pop hits, you know, like Rocket and everything. So... He's a guy who's transcended jazz in order to have the success that he has. Right, right. But also, he's a legendary, iconic figure, so he's almost beyond human. I mean, he's like this person that who's been doing it so long and has become, you know, so famous that people just give him money just for existing. You're talking about about Wynton Marsalis, right? Well, I was actually just talking about Herbie Hancock. Oh, okay. But I mean, when you when you mentioned this artist that you've done covers for, though. Oh no, that's Christian McBride. Oh, Christian okay. McBride. Do you know Christian McBride? Yeah, covers? I do. Yeah. Yeah. I've done his last eight covers. Wow. Uh, he's, he's a friend of mine. One of my best friends was his manager. Some years ago, he started a new band called Inside Straight. And instead of getting a photo shoot done, my friend, knowing that I was an illustrator, asked me to do the cover. And then he and I kind of began a creative sort of partnership. Wow. His, the visualization of his music. So... A lot of his albums that I've done covers for, also LPs, vinyl LPs, he has won Grammys for. And I never know if I'm going to get to do it next year because, you know, <laughs> it's one of those things that I wait for him and I hear Christian's voice say, hey, Brother Brown, I got another cover for you. But I never know if he's going to call me. But I've done eight <laughs> so far. So people who don't know who Christian is, he, he's a bass player, composer, band leader, 
when Sting started his first band, Sting, the pop singer from the police, he was his bass player. Sting's a bass player, so that tells you something about the greatness of him. But he's mm-hmm. also played with everybody who means anything. He's played with every single musician there is. He's a genius player. So I, I consider that to be one of the proudest things that I've ever done as an illustrator is, is do his artwork. He's also heads the uh, Newport Jazz Festival. He has a radio show on NPR called Jazz Tonight. Mm-hmm. He's just incredible human being and one of the most talented people I've ever met. I mean, I think it sort of speaks to, you know, sort of what you said earlier about jazz not being super popular. You kind of end up having to do a lot of different things just within your musicianship in order to make that happen. Like with Christian, you said he's heading up to jazz festival. He does a radio show. Like you almost have to have your hand in a bunch of different pots instead of just focusing on maybe, you know, performing or touring or something. Yeah. If you want to make money. Yeah, look, yeah, that is the truth. And as you know, the only way to make money nowadays is no longer in recording. It's in um, merch. Merch and touring. Yeah. And getting, you know, and so going back to what I was saying earlier, when pandemic went down, I mean, a lot of these guys weren't making any money. If you're in jazz, it's particularly painful because that's the only way you make money, going on Mm -hmm. jazz tours Mm -hmm. to other countries. And because jazz obviously is appreciated in Asia and Europe. So yeah. that's where they make their money. Um, yeah. if, you, if, you, if you can't go anywhere, then you can't depend on the recordings. Even in the best days of jazz, they never sell anything like the way, you know, pop music does. Right. So, I mean, a, a flop record by Ed Sheeran still sells a hundred times more than <laughs> the jazz record. record. By, no, that's, by that's by the truth. Pride. And that's just the way it is. But I like being connected with someone with so much integrity and he also gives me an incredible amount of freedom in what i get to do on his covers uh-huh. that's why it works for me because even though i'm illustrating in the sense in the true sense of the word which is that i'm doing a drawing based on a, on a previous idea um and telling a story it's still he's not like you know looking over my shoulder and saying do it like this i mean sometimes right. i'll have notes or something but he trusts me to know what i'm doing mm-hmm. that's a lot different than doing other kinds of commercial illustration where mm-hmm. you have to do everything precisely the way you're being told, and if you don't do it that way. And also, for me, in children's book, I've had the same experience. I mean, I interpret the words that are in the script of the books that I do. And I may get feedback and editors talking to me about it, but we can usually discuss it. It's not something where somebody says, you have to do it this way or you're fired. It doesn't Mm -hmm. work that way. And um, that's a little different than the real world is, including in um, advertising. Ooh, you are. <laughs> I'm not, I mean, you just touched on so many points that just hit me just personally in terms of like oh, it, musicians and design and all that sort of stuff. I mean, it's yeah. Yeah. Wow. Wow. I want to talk about your work with Churchill Downs, your work with jazz at Lincoln Center. I know I mentioned Marsalis earlier, but you got to work at some pretty prestigious institutions early in your career. Yeah, I consider myself incredibly fortunate. The reason I was in Louisville, Kentucky was because my my former wife was a professor at the University of Louisville. So I showed up there with no real skills <laughs> and didn't know what I was going to do. And I had to get a job. I got a, a job at a small African-American owned advertising agency. And I was still learning my craft at that point. And uh, one of uh, the uh, African-American woman named Cindy Cook, who was a supervisor at Churchill Downs, asked me if I'd be interested because she said, we want to start an, a graphics department in Churchill Downs. And there's no black people working there mm. at all doing anything except me. 
I wanted to bring somebody else black in there. And we don't even know how to use computers or know how to do anything. So you're going to have to order the computers and find the programs. And basically, it was to do the marketing for the park and the programs and the posters and everything like that. It was challenging because I was just new to it myself. And, and even it goes so far back, I don't even think there was InDesign yet. I think it was like Quark or something. If anybody's old enough to remember that, listening to this. <laughs> I did it. And then while I was doing it, I made friends with a gentleman named uh, Andre Guess, who had gotten, who was a really good friend of mine when I was living in Louisville. And he got a job at Jazz Lincoln Center because Winton would come to Louisville and do concerts. And we used to, with such big jazz fans, after the show, Winton Marsalis is the type of a guy, he would sit around after every concert, even, I don't care if it was a four-hour concert, he would stand around and meet everybody and sign every autograph. So we'd go talk to him. And after a few years of doing that, he got to know who we were. He even had dinner at Andre's house at one point. Mm-hmm. We became friends with him. He said, well, listen, I'm building this thing. It's never been done before. It's a whole venue just for jazz. It's going to be called Jazz Lincoln Center. I'm going to run it. Wow. And uh, so he hired my friend to be an administrator. I think it was in financial officer or something like that. And then he, my friend told me, okay, I'm going to go up there. And I'm not going to leave you behind, though. In a year, I'm going to bring you there. Almost a year to the day, he calls me and says, come to New York. You're going to come back to New York now. And he had never from, he, he wasn't from New York. My friend was from uh, Kentucky. So I came to New York. They interviewed me. It was a very intimidating interview because it was in a table full of the board of directors. A lot of famous people were in the board of directors, including the boxer George Foreman mm-hmm. and Judith Jameson, the great dancer, Al Roker, the newsman. They're all people who contributed money and were part of the board of directors. And they yeah. interviewed me. And I was uh, leaving out of the office, the place, and the receptionist, uh, Mel, who's still a friend of mine, she, she said, uh, a witness on, a wa- on the phone. And I was like, oh, shit, you're going to tell me not to come back because I didn't get the job. And handed me the phone. And he came on and he goes, you're a bad motherfucker. <laughs> 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 it was like, really? And I was like, wait. And he goes, yeah, get back, get your ass back here in two weeks. <laughs> so I got the job and I worked for them for about five years and from there is when I started doing um, advertising because after a while I felt like I did as much as I could do there but through there I got to meet so many incredible musicians jazz and otherwise because we used to have amazing musicians come there to do uh, benefits so people like Stevie Wonder came and Ray Charles came and Paul Simon came and it was just an incredible incredible experience and a nonprofit. so it was the, the whole point of view of Jazz Lincoln Center is to teach people about jazz and let yeah. people jazz still lives and that it's in existence and you should go see it and you should appreciate it. It's not what you think it is and all that. So I got, I really, it was great. And I got to design for them and I got to meet a lot of incredible other designers and be part of the community of uh, graphic designers in New York. The whole time thinking in my mind, like, I really want to be an illustrator, <laughs> but this is great. <laughs> I mean, to me, that sounds like a dream job, like you're doing design you're surrounded by jazz. That sounds like, for me, that would be perfect. Uh, it was. It was for a while. Like all things, you know, all good things come to an end. Like any organization, there's changes and things happen. And it, it's not what it was when you first started. And people, new people come in and they have their own ideas. I have nothing bad to say about it. It was a decision I made as well as something that I loved. But you can't stay everywhere, stay in one place forever. That's true. Ironically, after working in... Um, advertising for a few years i ended up going back into the music and being the art director for blue note jazz clubs what Um, yeah i was there for about four years so blue note jazz people think of the one club in new york but they actually have clubs in 
all over the world, in Madrid, Milan, Japan, Hawaii. I was their art director for several years. So again, I was in this club. I was meeting, I was back in my jazz world. I was in heaven because I love jazz musicians. Jazz musicians are some of the, the most even-keeled people, artists there are, because mm-hmm. they don't make any money. They don't get rich. They're just doing it because they love it, and they're happy to be doing it. If they can make a living doing something you like doing it, then you're a happy person. Yeah. So they tend to be not arrogant, tend to be happy, tend to be hardworking, tend to be very committed and focused because it's, to be a good musician, it takes a lot of, as you know, mm-hmm. it takes an incredible amount of concentration, rehearsal, practice, and focus. Yeah. And they're always thinking of what they're going to do next. So being around those people makes you better at what you do. So it makes you better at your art because you see the commitment they have. I said, damn, I need to get serious about what I'm doing because these <laughs> motherfuckers are kicking ass what they're doing. You see somebody play, you see Herbie or Chick Corea come up there, sweat their ass off and play, and they get off and they're like, what are you going to do now? Oh, I'm going to go get some chicken wings. I'm like, damn, man, this guy just killed himself, but you know, now he's done and now he's going to go do something else. And I'm thinking, oh my God, these guys, I want to be like them. I want to be like them. You know, yeah. so- so that's why they're a constant inspiration to me. It's like total commitment and highest level of achievement mixed with this sort of chill, like, yeah, well, we're here doing it type of attitude. You yeah. Know? It's beautiful, man. What advice would you give to people out there? Like they're hearing your story. They're hearing all this about you. What advice would you give to people that want to follow in your footsteps? I just think you have to be honest with what you really want to do. I mean, listen, I understand practicality. I'm totally know that that is. I mean, I've spent a lot of my life doing jobs. I've had all kinds of jobs and I've done whatever it took to take care of myself or my family. But there also has to be this part of you that doesn't lose the eyes on the prize. What is it you really want to do? What is it that makes you the happiest? And it doesn't matter what it is. If it's um, riding a unicycle backwards or uh, being the, the world's best juggler, whatever, you know, you, you have to focus on that eventually because you don't want to spend the rest of your life just doing something that you just feel like you need to do in order to make a living. And I know that's not always everybody's path, but you have to work towards it, I think. I would say I spent a good half of my life doing things that I had to do, and now I'm having a half of my life from doing things I want to do. And I think it's worth doing that, whatever it is, whether it's being a doctor or being a hedge fund manager or being a fireman. It's the passion behind it that I think is important, and you shouldn't deny yourself of that. My Both my sons are musicians. Now, any parent will tell you, you don't want your son to be a musician for all <laughs> the reasons I've already stated earlier. <laughs> it's hard to make a living, and you're never probably going to be rich. But I can't imagine them doing anything else because they're so deeply committed to it, and that's all they want to talk about. I did a book about it because it was such, it's such a, a focused commitment, even more so than me. They knew what they wanted to do before I did in terms of their lives. So I guess my advice is always do what you have to do. No one's going to fault you for that, but don't forget what you want to do. Do you have a a dream project that you'd love to do one day? It it sounds like you've already touched on so many of your passions with your work. There's specific things. Right now I'm trying to get out a coffee book on jazz portraits I've done over the years, which is tougher than you would think to get printed and published. And the other thing is some years ago, I wanted to put out a book about Eric Dolphy, and I did a lot of preliminary work. I even did a Kickstarter. I could not get the book published. I could not get it finished. 
and I wrote a script and I illustrated over half of it. And Eric Dolphy is a saxophone player, composer, who I actually am totally enamored with in terms of his life trajectory. He was just a really nice guy who was committed to his art. And he died very young in a very sad way, actually on a gurney in Germany from a, a diabetic shock. And the people that were there did not realize that he had died, had that problem. And they thought he was just a, a black musician who was on drugs and didn't take care of him the way they should have. Mm. But his life before that, he brushed against all the great musicians, Charles Mingus and John Coltrane, he played with for a lot of years, who loved him. And I wanted to do a graphic novel about him. And I did a lot of work on it. And I did a lot of things, but it just kind of just one of those projects keeps getting away. It fell through a couple of times. And I am just starting to resurrect it now. And if I can get that book done, I'll die happy. When you look back at your career, is there like a particular moment or an experience that really stands out to you the most in your mind? Can I break it down into two? Sure. Okay. The first one is the one I just told you about, which mm-hmm. is uh, Wendy Marcel's telling me I was a bad motherfucker. <laughs> the second one is, and it's almost the opposite of that, but it gave me a motivation. I went to a comic book company early on, soon out of high school. I was starting to get small jobs to do things, but I didn't really get anything major yet. And I won't tell you which comic book company it is, but it's a major one. It's one of the big two. I showed him my portfolio and the editor the white editor looked at it and he said, yeah, this is pretty good, but we already got a colored artist. So oh, we already got one. So oh. thanks for coming in. Damn. And I just said, can I, <laughs> <laughs> I won't say the word F this guy. Yeah. And he ain't stopping me. And I can say even in this world, and I'm, I'm 60 years old and I've seen racism of all kinds. But I have never really been held back when I really wanted to do something. I've had all kinds of opportunities, despite my race. I just don't accept that as a reason for not achieving anything. My father was a doctor. My mother was the first black woman to work in this bank that she worked in. I feel like if you really want something, you cannot use that. So I guess to answer your question, it was important to me that that guy told me what he said, because I said, F this guy. He's not stopping me because I'm black. Wow. Before we wrap this up, and I meant to get to this kind of earlier in the interview, you know, you love jazz. I love jazz. Who are some like contemporary jazz artists that you like? Oh, that's an interesting question. I like a lot of cats, man. Um, one of them just passed away, but I, I still consider him contemporary. That's Roy Hargrove. Oh, yeah. He's awesome cat. I think Christian's pretty contemporary. There's a young cat just out now called named Joel Ross. He's fantastic. Kamasi Washington mm-hmm. is pretty awesome. There's, I mean, I'm trying to mix, I'm trying to think of, when you're 60 years old, you think, well, who's contemporary? I'm going to say Brad Meldow, but Brad Meldow, I've been around for a minute, so <laughs> he's not so <laughs> uh, But you know what I'm saying? It's like, I hear cats all the time, man. I want to hear it. I want to hear the young guys like Joey Alexander is kind of phenomenal. Young oh, yeah, guy. young kid. You're really young. I mean, he could play his ass off, though. There's a lot of them, man. I mean, there's so many. I occasionally write for a website called uh, allaboutjazz.com, and I do do reviews. And I just did an uh, interview with a cat named uh, Croker. Uh, Theo, Theo, Croker. Theo Croker, yeah. Yeah, and we did a nice interview. I painted him many times, too. He's, he's, he's real good. Oh, my favorite young singer is uh, Cecile McLaurin. She's brilliant. 
jazz singer. Yeah, she's, she's like great. Back. She's modern. At the same time, she got the old school thing going on too. Like, mm-hmm. you know, this drummer I really like named Makaya McCraven. He's pretty hot. Man, there's so many cats out there, man. No, <laughs> there, know? there is, there uh, is. VJ Irish is a little bit on the older side, but VJ is could play, could play, could play. Tyshawn Shory. Yeah, I had this. I feel like I had a conversation with my son. We're always talking about music. Um, <laughs> he, he's always a little bit. He's a little more on the edge than me. He always knows what's going on more than I do. He said, "Dad, you never heard of this guy, man. You old." And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> "I said, buddy, he's like, he been out about two, three years." I said, "Son, I don't." <laughs> I don't know what's going on. Two, three years. Two, three years is still new to me. But yeah, there's just a ton of them. Anybody you like, Maurice? Uh, you mentioned Cecile. I like her. There's actually a jazz singer I first found on TikTok who's really great. Samara Joy. She's a jazz vocalist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Oh, my God. Her voice is so good. She's incredible. Yeah. And then I've seen her live. Oh, oh, I want to see her live. I hope she comes to Atlanta one day. Mm -hmm. I know she's playing at Blue Note next month in New York. Trying to think who else. I like a lot of bands like Incognito. There was like a time and I would say like the... I don't know, maybe mid to late 90s to early 2000s, where you started to see this mix of jazz with other genres. So like you would have jazz and hip hop or jazz and R&B, quote unquote, neo soul. So like that's how I started to find out about. Well, that's not necessarily how I started to find out about jazz artists, because I've been playing jazz through. I was in a jazz band in high school and everything. So I had always kind of known about it. But it's just interesting kind of diving more into like learning about other artists and just sort of the, I don't know, I feel like for a while in the 70s, there was just sort of a fine line between jazz and I guess what could be considered R&B, where someone like a Roy Hargrove or a, a Roy Ayers or someone would kind of like toe that line a little bit. Yeah, totally. I mean, like my son's favorite musician is uh, D'Angelo. Mm. And if you have D'Angelo, you can take your finger and bring that to Erica Badu. And you bring yeah. And then to Robert Glasper. And, oh, he's and, so good. Robert yeah, Glasper Robert is Glasper, so good. And Robert Glasper, by the way, we were talking earlier about uh, popular success. He's probably the most successful jazz musician. If you call him a jazz musician, I don't even know if I call him that anymore. But he, <laughs> because he works with so much pop. But he's the epitome of the, of the kid that grew up listening to hip hop. Yeah. But love, but, but love jazz, but also has jazz chops. So there's always an element of hip hop with jazz. So you got, you got Robert. He played at Blue Note a lot uh, recently. And, you know, he's up there on the stage with uh, most deaf and mm-hmm. uh, Yassin, Yassin Bey, rather, and cats like that. You know, so he's doing that. He's bridging the gap. So I do think you're absolutely right that there's a bridging of a gap between old school jazz, you know, Louis Armstrong and Miles Davis and more like contemporary music, hip hop, funk, R&B mixed in with what could be called jazz, like Kendrick Scott, Nubia Garcia, who's a, a an English uh, saxophone player. Mm-hmm. There's, just, there's just so many people who for whatever reason they got exposed to jazz and they appreciate the musicianship of it yeah but then they also connect to where they come from which is their music like our, my music is r&b from the 1970s their music is that but it's still they like the elements of both things and they kind of put them together you know and mm-hmm. this other thing like there's a label called uh, jazz is dead oh. um, which is run by a guy named and- andre young Mm-hmm. And a guy named, um, I forget his name, but he used to be, he was one of the original members of Tribe Called Quest. So I can't remember which one. Oh, Ali Shaheed Muhammad. Exactly. Yeah. And Jazz is Dead is a project that basically takes, they're constantly playing with either old established jazz musicians, jazz musicians that exist now, or 
up and coming people mixed in with their R&B, funk, hip hop sensibilities. It's a perfect mixture of all this. And to me, they represent what jazz is right now yeah. because they look back and forward at the same time. I think the thing, the most common thing that they probably want to see is just great musicianship, Yeah, being able to play. So you're not going to hear just somebody playing off a computer, synthesizers and loops, although that might be an element. But there's people playing live bass, there's people playing live drums, there's people playing a horn, a, a saxophone or a trump, so that you have all these things in it. You got raw singing and you have other things. And to me, that's where the music is right now. And I'm really excited about it because I love all that shit. I had a designer on the show. This was, I don't know, this had to have been a couple of years ago, Erica Lewis. She was a designer in Arkansas. And now she's in New York. And I had her on the show and we were, you know, just talking about her work as a designer. She's like, yeah, I'm a UX designer, et cetera, et cetera. And then I like ran across this group. I think it was on YouTube. And she was the lead singer. It's this group called uh, Kaye Soul, C-A-L-L-E. And they're like a, I don't know what, I guess sort of like a jazz samba sort of. Not samba, because samba's fast. Like I would say, Yeah, like a jazz bossa nova sort of band. And she was the lead singer. And I was like, why didn't you tell me? She's like, <laughs> she's like, don't nobody want to hear about that. It's like, it's just a thing that I do with some friends. I was like, that is amazing. That yeah. is amazing. Yeah. I would say, oh, God, I'm trying to, th- I mean, we're, we're going off on a tangent. We'll wrap the interview <laughs> up. But I'd say probably my favorite jazz artist now is one that I sort of found by accident. I had just come to Atlanta in 99 and I had went to, there's a neighborhood here called Little Five Points. There's a music shop there called Moods Music, which is still open to this day. And I remember hearing this single called Ghosts from this band out of Nor, I think they're out of Norway called Beady Bell, B-E-A-D-Y-B-E-L-L-E. And I was like, oh, wow, this is really good. And like Daryl, who runs the shop, it like was like, yeah, I got their CD right here if you want it. And like that started to me like a 20 plus year love affair with this band. I have all their albums. <laughs> They've only performed in the States once. They performed in Rochester, New York in 2007, I think. And when I heard about it, I was like, oh, I'm going. I'm going. Like uh, my friends were like, what's in Rochester, New York? I was like, BD Bell is coming to the United States for the first time and they're playing at the Rochester Jazz Festival. And they're looking at me like, Okay. <laughs> like, go for it. And I went and I heard them perform. I was sitting in the front row. There weren't a lot of people there because I guess people didn't know the band, but I was just giddy. I got to talk to them afterwards. They signed all my albums that they had up to that date. The band has since broken up, but she's still the lead singer still goes by the name BD Bell and she still performs and puts out work and stuff. But that's probably my favorite artist, my favorite jazz artist. And then that opened me up to. I'd say contemporary jazz artist, probably my favorite contemporary jazz artist, but like her and that band opened me up to like Norwegian jazz and Finnish jazz. And like, I mean, they're all pulling from American, black American roots, you know, but it's just so interesting how jazz in other countries is like just received as opposed to here. A lot of DJ elements and hip hop elements too, and electronics in a lot of the uh, Norwegian jazz world. So they do a lot of interesting things there. Do any other bands that you really like from, from Norway? I just want to know if, if I know any. I know that she had a background singer on her fourth album named Bernhoft, Jarl Bernhoft, 
who went on to become a solo artist. And sort of to that, that thing you're talking about with the sort of mixing with electronic, he would do this like live mixing on stage where he'd like do some beatboxing or some other like vocal sounds and then like mix it all together on stage while also performing, like singing and playing guitar. I like a lot of his work. There's like a lot of UK jazz, like Quantic Soul Orchestra, Alice Russell. Oh God, there's one in particular who I mentioned on the show before, Zara McFarlane. Yeah, there's a lot. It's a lot. (laughs) Now I'm getting overwhelmed trying to think of of all of it. But but yeah, Yeah. wow. Wow. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? What kind of work do you want to be doing? As I said earlier, I think I'm going to try to make a situation for myself where I am focused mostly on illustration. I want to do more writing. I want to write more books. I like getting assignments because you get great stories like the one I was talking about with uh, Malcolm X and um, but or John Lewis. But I also want to create more stuff on my own. I do like doing magazine stuff. I like doing newspaper stuff. I just think if I just get assignments, you know, to create art based on subjects that I'm interested in, I'd be really happy. And if I'm able to do that, and I always fantasize about not staying in one place, like traveling around the world, because, you know, when you do what I do, you know, you, you could be anywhere. Mm-hmm. So you can be in Berlin, you can be in Paris, you can be in London, you can be in Mexico. And I want to start doing that. I want to do these assignments, but be in different countries, set up a studio and just illustrate books from different parts of the world, live somewhere for six months, live somewhere for a year and get to see the world, which is something I've never really been able to do much of for most of my life. So that's my goal. I hope to do someday. Well, just to wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more information about you and about your work and everything online? Well, my website is uh, keithhbrown.com. My Instagram handle is I am the leopard which <laughs> I'm actually on hiatus with it right now, uh, but I'll be getting back on it in a couple of weeks. I decided to take a break from um, social media just because I was doing it every single day. <laughs> and it was, and I just think I, I got addicted someone to see if I could unaddict myself, <laughs> if there's such a word. Yeah, those two places, Instagram, and I'm also on Facebook at Keith Henry Brown. But the easiest way is probably just go through my website. All right, sounds good. Well, Keith Henry Brown, I want to thank you so, so much for coming on the show. I was so excited putting together what I was going to talk to you about because I was like, you've done illustration and it's jazz. I'm like, this is going to be a great conversation and you did not disappoint with that. I think if, if there's anything people can certainly take from this conversation is that you can do what you want to do if you set your mind to it. Like, don't be afraid to go out and do it. And you found a way to meld your passions together in a way that lets you live the life that you want to live, which I think is what all creatives strive for at the end of the day. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Yeah. And, and if I may, I, I just wanted to say one more thing really quickly. Sure. I, Morris? Yeah. It ain't about awards. It's about doing what satisfies you. A lot of times in, in design and even in illustration, people are always saying, you should put yourself up for this and get that. And you should tell everybody you won that award and this award. It ain't about that. It's about what makes you happy and you can win 10 awards and golden, whatever, but you got to satisfy you or it's not really going to mean anything. Wise words. Again, Keith Henry Brown. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Cheers, brother.
big, big thanks to Keith Henry Brown. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Keith and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. Transcripts are provided by Brevity and Wit. This episode of Revision Path is also brought to you by Hover. Building your online brand has never been more important, and that begins with your domain name. Show the online community who you are and what you're passionate about with Hover. With over 400 plus domain extensions to choose from, including all the classics and fun niche extensions, Hover is the only domain provider I use and trust. Go to hover.com forward slash revision path and get 10% off your first purchase. So what did you think of the interview? Better yet, what do you think about the podcast overall? You know, we'd love to hear from you. We have one person. His name is Richard Otley. I'm sure by the time he listens uh, to this episode, he'll hear it. But he always responds to pretty much every episode. We'd love to hear from you, Richard. And if you're listening and you want to let us know how you feel about an episode or an interview, let us know. We're on social media. Hit us up on Twitter. Hit us up on Instagram. Just search for Revision Path, all one word. Or you can leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, on Amazon Music, or on Spotify. The more people you tell about the show, the bigger we become, and the further we can extend our reach to talk to Black designers, developers, artists, and other digital creatives from all over the world. As always, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.